Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's podcast, I'm joined by author Tony McMahon, and we discuss his important book, The Battle for British Islam, which he co-authored with Sarah Khan. Before we begin, I just want to make a quick service announcement. We will be releasing our final episode of 2017 on Friday the 16th of December, and then we will be returning in the new year in late January because I need a bit of time to create some new content, so apologies about that. Uh, We've also finally launched our website. You can go to www.drycleanercast.co.uk and on that website you've got all our episodes listed. I've also created a blog um, which I'll be updating regularly and on this month's blog I've posted a list of books, movies and gadgets that may make good gifts for the upcoming holiday season which I've dubbed Spymus. And I put a double S on it because when I put one S on, it didn't look quite right. And I like to think I invented the word Spymus, so, you know, I can add an extra S if I want to. Uh, One last thing, in the new year, we'll be moving our hosting away from SoundCloud, and I apologize to SoundCloud users. Um, If you listen via iTunes and other apps, you shouldn't notice any change. However, on SoundCloud, users will be affected as our episodes will disappear from there. Sorry about that. Um, There's a very good reason to why I'm moving from SoundCloud. Um, I'm just trying to push the podcast even more. And unfortunately, I found other hosting websites through a bit more research are actually more effective at spreading the word about this podcast. So SoundCloud users, you can still catch us on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast and many more apps. And also, if you follow us on Twitter, you'll catch all the latest episodes on there. But more importantly, if you go to our website, our brand new website, www.drycleanercast.co.uk, you can find all the episodes embedded on there. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this month's episode. I think it's a really interesting interview. I apologize for the room we're in. It is a bit noisy, um, but the the voices, I think, are clear. So um, I've done my best with some audio posts to boost the voices, bring the background down a bit. Um, But you'll be joining myself and Tony in a rather, rather noisy room. Anyway, without further ado, let's get going. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Tony, welcome to the Dry Cleaner cast. Hello. Before we get stuck in, please can you just tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was uh, originally a BBC producer in news, um, a journalist in the 90s, and then I sold my soul to PR, and I did corporate PR for 10 years. Uh, and then this opportunity came up to work with community groups, the civil society groups as we call them, uh, in this area of kind of counter-extremism, counter-terrorism, community cohesion, about three, four years ago. And so I've sort of brought to it this area of work, my kind of journalistic background, I suppose a bit of my PR, um, I've always been interested in politics. And, uh, but no, it's, it's, it's incredibly interesting to work with civil society groups all over the country 
basically around safeguarding young people and community cohesion. You've co-authored a book called The Battle for British Islam with Sarah Khan. Can you just give us a very brief overview of what the book's about and why it was important to write it? So there's, you've got a lot of books that talk about Islam as a religion and you've got a lot of books these days that talk about Islamist terrorism. So in a sense, um, you know, Daesh, ISIS if you prefer, Al-Qaeda and so on. But what we thought, there wasn't a book in the middle, covering the middle ground of what's sometimes described as non-violent extremism. Um, I'm not suggesting that supporting those groups takes you into violent extremism, but it's the, it's, they're the groups that kind of create uh, an ideological environment that makes it easier for radicalizers to operate. Um, and also I think Sarah's concern was that there's been a shift really over the last 20-30 years within British Islam from uh, a more reconciled Islam or maybe even more cultural Islam from the Indian subcontinent to this kind of globalised Islamist identity, you know, the adoption of uh, an ideology which we call Islamism. So we felt a book needed to cover that space. So it's not covering the terrorist space, it's not about Islam as a faith, it's covering the ideology of Islamism and those groups that kind of espouse it and the risks of that. Can you just tell us a bit about Sarah and how you both came together to collaborate on the book? So getting involved in this line of work, uh, working with community groups around community cohesion, youth safeguarding, um, I met Sarah, uh, she was running a women's group, um, human's right, human rights group called Inspire. In fact, one of the first groups that I, I worked with. And um, she was just talking about the work that she did. And in fact, it was in relation to her feeling that a lot of liberals, people on the left, had let down Muslim women. And the book I originally suggested, I was going to call it Muslim Women Betrayed, although the publisher hated it. But I, I, I was actually going to write about Muslim women and the way in which, because the left, or sections of the left, have appeased or got into bed with Islamism, they've tended to uh, you know, downplay the position of women within British Islam and what's been happening there. Anyway, we, we sort of moved on from that to cover the whole landscape, but that was the original idea and that's how we really started talking. And then the book kind of evolved as we went along. And how's the book been received? Because it's been out about a year now, hasn't it? Yeah, so I mean, we were reviewed, I mean, Sunday Times did a lovely review, and uh, I mean, some certain publications linked with our Islamist friends weren't so, uh, weren't so effusive in their praise, but um, Sarah did the sort of run of the TV studios and uh, Broadsheets, Daily Mail, did a review and so on. So, um, and I think for the audiences out there, it's actually been probably best received by kind of opinion formers, decision makers, legislators. It's almost like if your elite opinion has, has been more interested. I, I'm hoping that when we go to the uh, the second edition that we can broaden out to the general public a lot more but it's been the kind of if you want the cognoscenti the Guardian reading FT reading economist reading uh, layers and I think what we'll try and do is kind of reach a broader layer but I mean it's a good start yeah definitely well upon reading the book it kind of feels like Islam today is going through a kind of battle for its soul if you will and it appears that extremists are trying to dominate the interpretations and teachings of Islam and destroy that kind of middle ground between Muslims and non-Muslims in British society. The book identifies an ideological narrative that comes from a growing convergence of British Salafists and Islamists being the root of this battle for Islam. Before we go into what that narrative is, 
just for the benefit of our listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with certain terms like Salafist and Islamist, can you just give us a very quick sort of dummy's guide to Salafism and Islamism? Yeah, so Islam is Islam as a faith, mm. you know, has been around since the seventh century. So that's that's Islam, and you know, Islam went through all sorts of changes over the centuries, developing schools of thought jurisprudence that allowed Islam to flex and develop as, as it you know governed huge empires, but. It's really in the 19th century when the Muslim world was overwhelmed by Western colonialism that you saw the development of new lines of thought, what we might call Islamism and Salafism, in response to that. But it wasn't necessarily reactionary or backward-looking. I mean, what the Salafis said they wanted to do was to return to the original principles of Islam. The, the Salafi means the first three generations and followers of, uh, of, of the Prophet. Um, but they wanted to get rid of all the medieval jurisprudence and what they called innovation, bida, which they regard as evil. Uh, the trouble with Salafism now is it's kind of um, fossilized into a series of uh, rather arid uh, reactionary demands, and that, so it, it's become almost a, a parody of itself. Um, Islamism really came out of the collapse of the, the Ottoman Empire in the 1920s, so you had the, the emergence of the Muslim Brotherhood and then later on Hizb Tahrir, organizations like that. And they created this kind of yearning for a caliphate. I mean, I think a lot of Muslim scholars would say that caliphate is largely imaginary. I mean, the caliphate was always far more flexible, a lot more tolerant um, than the caliphate that we've seen, for example, in the form of Daesh, you know, uh, or Al-Qaeda. You know, it wasn't uh, brutal. It wasn't uh, enforcing a uniform uh, policy in terms of religion. But um, those two strands competed against each other, Salafists and, and Islamists. Salafism kind of um, embraced the Wahhabi line of thought out of Saudi Arabia. Um, and Islamism has kind of morphed in its own way as well. I mean, some of it becoming you know, more peaceful and reconciled, but some heading off, as we know, in a more jihadi direction, more extremist direction. And um, what is the, the Salafist-Islamist narrative that's at the root of the battle for British Islam? So I guess, the, the, the problem is, as a Muslim, and I'm not a Muslim, Sarah is, but you know, I'm posing this you know, in the third person, but as a Muslim, do I believe that I can lead a life here in this society, or do I have to go and, as it were, join a caliphate? Can I, can I exist in a non-Muslim society, or do I have to create a caliphate somewhere and, and then strive to create a global caliphate? The thing is, the majority of Muslims throughout history have been perfectly able to lead a reconciled and, 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 and nuanced and multifaceted existence. But what the kind of Salafi Islamists have done is they're creating, it's almost a hothouse environment for Muslims, you know. You cannot exist in this society. Everything's stacked against you. You know, it, the, the, the whole of the West is at war with Islam as a faith. You know, and it's and it's creating the aim is to create a kind of ghetto mentality, uh, where Muslims feel that you know th that they cannot exist in the society, that their identity as well can only be Muslim. It cannot be British as well. That that's uh, that's irreligious or whatever, um, and that's the aim. It's, it's, it's the kind of if you want, in a way, it's it's funny. It's kind of symbiotic with what the far right are trying to do because it's because both sides are trying to, as it were, push Muslims into a corner. A beleaguered corner where they, you know, either they go home in the case of the far right, 
or they go off and try and form a caliphate somewhere in the case of the Islamists. Mm -hmm. Well, as you're saying, like the far right, um, they have a lot of, you know, Islamists and the far right have a lot of lot in common. They're both deeply intolerant and rely on this sort of clash of civilizations rhetoric. Um, is it fair to say that the terrorism that we're seeing today committed in the name of Islam is actually an expression of an intolerant interpretation of Islam, not too dissimilar to the sort of neo-Nazis and their use of Christianity? I mean, it's interesting that Islamist ideology has borrowed a lot over the years from fascism and even from Leninism uh, in terms of its, its methodology, not, not, not necessarily its core beliefs, but in the way it operates, in the way it organises, in the way it sees phases in its struggle. And there was an imam who put it to me very well. Uh, he said, you know, of course you can actually justify all this terrorism if you want in the name of Islam. He said, never say that, you know, it, it, it cannot be done in the name of Islam. The point is the building blocks are there in the Quran and the Hadiths if you want to create that. But you say the same for the New Testament and the Old Testament. The point is that 99% of Muslims have ever existed haven't used the building blocks of their faith to build that. They've built something else. You know, you don't have to build that. You don't have to create that. You don't have to look for the most, if you want, bloodthirsty sentences you can find or, or, or things you can twist to see your narrative. You know, most Muslims have chosen to build something much more constructive, positive, and have built, you know, great civilizations. Why can't Everybody do that today. We've seen a um, lot of members of the Anglo-American far right equating all Muslims with terrorism. And we've seen members of the Amer Anglo-American left sharing platforms and apologising for terrorists and extremists. And this is leading to a lot of confusion in that debate, uh, in the debate on terrorism and its causes. In your opinion, what are the left and the right of British politics getting wrong in this ongoing debate about Islam and counter-terrorism? I mean, this is one of Sarah's, you know, um, a refrain that she she often repeats, and she's and she's right to, and that is that, you know, the left should be siding with Muslims who are supporting a, a reconciled identity, who stand up for women's rights, LGBT rights, workers' rights, uh, who believe in democracy, um, and instead of which, um, I think it's you know you can go right back to what's been happening to sections of the left, you go right back to the collapse of the Soviet Union, but you know there are sections of the left that I think very consciously decided to get into bed with Islamism. They thought that Muslims might constitute a, you know, a revolutionary mass that they could you know, uh, <coughs> recruit some of them and blah, blah, blah. You know, I think it was all very kind of cynical or desperate you know, initially, but it's, it's become embedded. And the thing about it is the Islamists as well have learnt to use civil rights discourse, human rights discourse to, to cement that coalition. It's very convenient for them for now, anyway, in, the, in this phase of the struggle. And, and then of course the thing is that by, by elevating Islamists to being normative Muslims, which is what they want, they want to be seen as they are the only real Muslims, that of course then fuels the far right narrative. And the far right, of course, it's, it's, it's fantastic. You know, if, you know, this is where, if you remember Al-Muhajiran, the group that used to hold up placards saying, you know, death to all non-Muslims and so on, they were a gift to the English Defence League. In fact, you know, I think they all came from Luton, actually, the Al-Muhajiran and the English Defence League, but they were a gift to each other. You know, they fueled each other's narratives. Um, but they're both cardboard cutouts of what the rest of us are like. You know, Muslims are not like Islamists, and the majority of the white population in this country are not the EDL, but, you know, that they make the most noise. Yeah. With this, 
you mentioned just that conscious effort of the left to kind of um, team up these Islamists. Am I right remembering there was a pamphlet, I think, that came out in the 90s called The Prophet and the Proletariat or something? I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that pamphlet. Yeah. Or well, I mean, that, that, that pamphlet was, was produced by the Socialist Workers' Party. Um, and uh, I think it was Chris Harmon, the, the, who's now passed on, but the former editor of, uh, of their paper. And it's an interesting pamphlet to read. I mean, you can, you can get it on Amazon or eBay. I mean, you know, I, I actually recommend people to, to buy it because they actually set out quite boldly their thought process and, you know, and how they saw this alliance working. It's actually a scorpion dance mm. between w w themselves and, and, and the Islamists. Um, and that you know it's a classic SWP approach. You know we'll go into the world of Islamism, we'll recruit the best ones. We'll uh, we won't make an issue out of some of the LGBT women stuff <clears throat> till later on, and then we'll kind of address that. Um, what's happened, I think, is that the Islamists saw them coming, and they've used them ever since. And so far from uh, you know these good Leninists thinking they were going to use the Islamists, the Islamists have used them. And in, in like. What I've noticed with the Islamists, they tend to use things like Guantanamo Bay and stuff like that to kind of further their kind of arguments and this sort of sense of persecution and to kind of paint the West as um, just imperialist evildoers. And, and it seems to sort of fit in with um, the, the left sort of anti-imperialist sort of stance, doesn't it? I, I never say that you know, a lot of the grievances that are raised are completely genuine and Guantanamo Bay is a, is a stain on the, on the record of the US. And you know, I've never said, for example, that Moaz Ambeg, the head of K, should ever have been uh, incarcerated in, in that kind of uh, facility. Um, and we've all got to support the rule of law. In fact, I think it's very important for us to support the rule of law to oppose torture because actually, if we if we backslide on those things, then we're kind of legitimising uh, that narrative. But there is a desire on the part of uh, of Islamists to you know to foster a victimhood narrative, and that comes down to really creating the identity that they want most Muslims to have, that they are victims, that they cannot live in this society. You know, this society is completely stacked against them. You know, there is no future here, ergo, you need to go and create another type of society <coughs> equals caliphate. One, one unfortunate thing that has become more apparent in recent years is hate crimes against Muslims in London have risen and the London Metropolitan Police and reported that attacks have risen something like seventy percent between July twenty fourteen and July twenty fifteen. And Tell Mama, which is a charity that tracks hate crimes against the Muslim community, has also noted that the primary target of these attacks tend to be women. So how can we undermine the Salafi Islamist narrative and debate terrorism as non Muslims without feeding into the sort of far right narratives of our society that fuel these hate crimes directed at the Muslim community? I always say to people don't make this a kind of like, oh, who, who will I side with? Shall I side with the Islamists or shall, shall I side with the extreme right? Let's other all of them. Let's other all the terrorists, let's other all the hate mongers, and let's us all stand on this side of the white line or brown line or yellow line, whatever you want to call it. Let's all stand on this side of the line and just say they are unacceptable. You know, I, I, I was with somebody the other day uh, when the Las Vegas shooting happened, and she said to me, oh God, I hope it's a white supremacist terrorist. And I said, you can't say that. The point is it's not a matter of, oh, I hope it's their terrorist, not our terrorist. The point is we have to oppose all terrorists and we have to oppose all, all hate mongers. And it's, it's true that you know Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and other forms of LGBT hatred are all going up. You know, we do have um, a climate where tensions are being ratcheted up. And I think you know, we have to, you know, we have to stand united against hate and we have to condemn both Islamists and extreme right inspired terrorism and hate crime unequivocally. And you know, in terms of these attacks, 
on, on Muslim women. No, we absolutely have to support uh, Muslim women in struggle and we have to support their right to dress in whatever way they wish to. So, you know, these European countries that are banning the burqa and the hijab and so on, it's a completely wrong approach. You know, there's no way that we should be interfering with women's clothing, women's bodies. And these are traditional left-wing yeah. principles, yeah, for goodness I sakes. Know, these are things we said in the old days, yeah. you know. Uh, so why anybody should even consider <laughs> this is beyond me. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, what do you think Muslims and non-Muslims could be doing better to undermine the terrorist narrative? You know, again, yeah, I find myself coming back to old left. Remember unity? We used to talk about unity a lot in the old days. I, I think it's, it's about unity. You know, it, it, I, I almost, you know, one of the things that Sarah says, there is no such thing as a Muslim community. Ditto, there's no such thing as a non-Muslim community. You know, we're a very disparate, multicultural, multi-ethnic society. I think where we put a dividing line is between those of us who support a reconciled, peaceful country that supports, you know, if you don't have to call it British values, call it basic decent values against those who are opposed, you know. And I think you, you will have the majority of Muslims on, on this side of the fence and the majority of non-Muslims and you'll have a minority on the other side. I think that's what we've got to do. We've got to condemn attempts to overthrow democracy from whatever source and to overthrow human rights and to overthrow women's rights and LGBT rights. That, that's the only criteria I think that we should be operating on and what religions are on our side should almost be secondary. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Your book um, goes into detail about the British government's prevent scheme. Can you just tell us a bit about how it works and why it's important? So, you know, since 9-11, and, you know, we, we can all raise criticisms about the direction of counterterrorism policy, but I remember back after 9-11, there were people who even denied the existence of Al-Qaeda, said, you know, kind of conspiracy theory type thinking that there wasn't uh, a genuine terrorist threat. This is all being dreamt up by our repressive governments. Well, I don't think anybody would say that now. You know, there is an identifiable, genuine terrorist threat. And it comes from the Islamist sources, but it comes also from the extreme right as well. And they have evidenced their capability <laughs> over the last 15 years through both, you know, shockingly huge attacks not just 9-11, but you know, what happened to the Tocha, for example, in Madrid in 2004, from memory, um, but also you know, the, 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 what the so-called lone actor attacks as well. You know, their capability is undeniable. Um, what, I, what PREVENT does, basically, it's, it operates, and one of the misconceptions is that it, it's a criminal, um, it actually operates, in, I hate to say pre-criminal because people think of minority report, yeah. but yeah, yeah pre-crime, but no, it, 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 it operates in a space, basically, where young people in particular can go on the prevent scheme and they work with an intervention provider and basically you know the hope is that they don't go down the wrong path and we wrote about a case early on in the book uh, two girls one boy and one of the girls went on the prevent scheme after she was caught basically trying to leave the country going to iraq and she's now back at school and you know she wrote a poem about her experience and she realizes she's going down the wrong path the boy refuse to go and prevent and you can that's nothing as well but you can you can refuse to go and prevent you can refuse to have your case considered by what's called channel 
Uh, well, no, he's, he's serving a life sentence because he was trying to radicalize another boy mm. online. He'd been groomed by a terrorist in Iraq, and then he in turn was trying to radicalize another kid. I mean, I think the important thing is to say it's very real the threat. It's not imaginary. Let's get past that bit. And prevent may have its flaws. Goodness knows it might need rebranding at some point, or, you know, there's always room for, for improving it. But to say that we don't need a counterterrorism strategy. Uh, uh, and, and that we don't need to kind of catch people before they fall into the criminal justice system. It's not a good place to end up. That's got to be the correct approach. We don't want young people to end up in court. We don't want young people to end up committing the sort of acts that lead to them ending up in court. Yeah, well, it destroys their lives. You need to get a criminal record. That's it. You know, um, you know, your life's finished. You can't travel to places. And yeah, so prevent is ruffling a lot of feathers. Um, why is there so much animosity towards Prevent? So I think it's become, it became rather a, a kind of lightning rod issue that I think as, the, as various Islamist groups and, and Salafi groups started to coalesce, they've been in competition in the 90s, they started to coalesce uh, from the early 2000s, partly in, res, in, in reaction to successive uh, counter-terrorism acts. They saw Prevent as an opportunity, a kind of propaganda opportunity if you want. And they've characterised Prevent as something that it simply is not. Um, and we go, in the book, we go through all the accusations that are made and the case studies that uh, certain websites put up, you know, with claims about what's happened to people and so on. And you can knock down, I would say, nearly all the case studies. There may be a couple, but they, uh, yeah, they've been misconstrued. But you will find that the, the lead case studies that are repeated over and over again uh, either had nothing to do with Prevent or there were other factors and they certainly didn't lead to anybody being interrogated in basement rooms or mm. extrajudicial tribunals or all the other things that are... I mean the other thing as well that they say about Prevent and again this comes to fostering a, a victimhood mentality is that Prevent is anti-Muslim, uh, that Prevent uh, you know, is after pious Muslims or if you grow a beard or wear a hijab you'll be... And, and, Absolutely none of this is true. And you know, the best thing to do is actually go and talk to a prevent coordinator. Um, they're the most um, you know, urbane, pleasant people you'd care to meet, and they care deeply about the communities that they work in. And you know, they're part of the local authority, they're part of the local community, and the characterization of prevent is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's attempts even as we speak um, to undermine prevent in the name of anti-racism. Um, there's a, there was a recent event um, which I, I think I sent you an email, the video from where it was um, stand up to racism and cage or kind of like holding this event um, where they were basically saying sort of prevent is a form of Islamist, uh, sorry, a form of Islamophobic racism. You know, these, these events are kind of going on as we speak. Well, I think, I mean, I, I, would, I would appeal to the anti-war movement and the anti-racism movement who are, you know, I went on an anti-Lawrence, a Nazi League demo when I was 15 in 1978, the, the great carnival against the National Front. I, absolutely support the anti-racist movement and, and the, the anti-war movement is entitled to its opinions as well. But I think by getting into bed with, um, with, with the Islamists, they've, they've fallen into a trap here because prevent has become, prevent is characterised as something it simply isn't. It's sometimes it's conflated with other elements of the government's CT strategy, it's conflated with wars in the Middle East, you know, it's, it, it's it's, I suppose, become a word by which, you know, if you don't like the government, I mean, I'm a Labour Party member, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not keen on <laughs> to do this government, but 
Preventus has just become a bucket into which all kinds of content can be thrown. Uh, Middle East wars, Islamophobia and so on. And that's not what it is. Prevent is intended to be a way of safeguarding mainly young people, but it's not just young people, through processes that are exactly the same as are used for gang violence, sexual, uh, sexual violence and so on. Mm. Now your book does identify a positive force that is battling extremists in the Muslim community and that force is women. Theresa May in 2014 when she was Home Secretary stated women can play a unique and powerful role in combating the extremist threat here and abroad, taking the lead in stopping preachers of hate from preying on young people. Why is the role of women so important and effective in fighting extremism in the Muslim community? So, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to sort of um, create any stereotypes about you know what women are or women aren't. But I think women have a role to play in making communities more resilient. Um, you know, they they care deeply about their own families. They care about their children. They they will be aware, let's say, that when their son goes to college and he comes back, that he's talking in a different way, that he's expressing different views. Um, and a lot of, there's a disproportionately high number of Muslim women who are, you know, who are in the home, um, who, who are not in the labor market. And, um, you know, as a consequence, are, if you want a more traditional role of, of mothers, I, well, I'm not condoning that. In fact, I'd like to see more Muslim women in the, in the labor market. But, I think women in the community, Muslim women in the community, have a particularly strong role to play in in making their communities more resilient, in in protecting their families, and uh, you know the work that, for example, Sarah has done uh, with women around the country shows that that's true. They are very enthusiastic about doing something to push back against radicalizers because they know the consequences. And there are barriers and risks to to Muslim women. What what are the kind of barriers and risks that they face when challenging extremism in their community? So I mean, Sarah herself has, <laughs> you know, she's she's been spat at and, and threatened. Um, you know, she's had to have the counterterrorism police around. I have too. And um, but you know, it's it, it, it you have to be very brave to take on these people. And you know, you get a mountain of abuse on social media. And particularly being a woman, of course, there's a particular. Should say um, type of abuse that's going to be levelled at, yeah. at, at a Muslim woman who, who's standing up, and you know a lot of these people in, in the kind of Islamist extremist uh, area are very misogynist. They don't believe that women should uh, have a voice, should stand up, should express themselves. And you know somebody like Sarah, who is, um, and there's other women, you know I can I can name as well, but who stand up, who make a stand, who. Uh, you know, committed to protecting their communities, they just make these Islamists see red. You know, and some of the stuff you know they'll put up on Twitter to try and, you know, to try and essentially uh, demolish these women's confidence. You know, it's absolutely appalling. You know, the, the kind of slut shaming and all this sort of thing that they indulge in. You know, is, is, and we detailed some of that in the book. We also didn't didn't put some of it in the book. Yeah, <laughs> some of it was pretty much it's a bit too fruity to put in, frankly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it's terrible, isn't it? Well, look, well, thank you so much for your time today, Tony. Before we wrap up, do you have any kind of like final thoughts you'd like to share on what we've covered, or is there something we may have missed that's important to you on this issue? I mean, I, I just think that we are. I'm, I'm sure everybody agrees. As of last year, you know, I mean, I sat there with the Trump victory, thinking, "My God, we're in a new world. We are in a new world." And um, there are two forces, unfortunately, in this new world that want to extinguish what Daesh itself calls the grey zone of compromise. 
So you have on the one hand Islamist extremism and you have on the other hand the extreme right. Both of those want a kind of what they would call a civilizational clash. They want an end of days moment. Most of us want nothing of the sort. You know, we want a nice job, a house, and, and a, a society you know, for our children and, and grandchildren to grow up in. You know, these people, we have to call time on them. And you know, we, we need to stand together of all faiths, of all colors, of all creeds, and I think stand up for basic human values. You know, a belief in equality, uh, an equality of opportunity, and a belief in women being equal, a belief in freedom of worship of all faiths. A lot of these things are not what Islamists believe in. They may, what they say in public incidentally and what they say in private are often two different things. They don't believe in that and it, it will become more obvious as time goes on if we allow them to make progress. So I, I think it's, it's basically core decent values all of us have to stand up for and push back against the extreme right and push back against Islamist extremism. That's the task in hand. Definitely. Where can listeners find out more about you and Sarah and your work? Well, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, I refer them to Sarah's. Sarah has a site, um, Inspire. We, we will inspire. Uh, I, I would basically advise them to go to go there. And uh, you know, we do do. We will be doing more book signings and so on when the second edition comes out next year, June, June of next year. That's the cheap edition. So okay. <laughs> but it, I mean, obviously, it's on bookshelves. But 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 other than that, I mean, contact us through. The Inspire uh, website with any questions, with any comments, uh, and we're on Twitter and social media and so on. So, um, but I think the first stop go, go go to the Inspire website where you you know you can get the full story of Sarah, but also the key things that she stands for. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Thanks. You, Chris. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>